Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Not too much to talk about this week, so I'll make it quick, but this episode marks the beginning of our investigation into Ed and Lorraine Warren's most famous cases. I don't want to spoil the episode, so I'll let you go in blind. But if you enjoy the show and you like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. There, for just $5 a month, you can get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, plus cool merch like postcards, pins, and much, much more. Without further ado, this week's episode. Welcome to Insidious Inspirations. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and each week we're diving into the urban legends, myths, and murders that inspired some of the greatest and goriest horror movies ever made. This week, we're looking at the terrifying inspiration behind The Conjuring. This is the true story of the Perone family and the haunting that would change their lives forever. In December of 1970, Roger and Carolyn Perone bought the old Arnold estate a 10-bedroom farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Built in 1736, the house sat on a vast, picturesque 200 acres of land, with plenty of space for the large family, consisting of Roger, Carolyn, and their five daughters. It was beautiful and quiet, tucked away in the forest with more than enough room for a comfortable new life in the countryside. While unpacking their things and moving in, Roger and Carolyn met with the property's previous renter to discuss maintenance. They had only one piece of advice for the family as they settled into their new home. For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Not the sort of thing you want to hear when moving into a new house, but rural living can be strange. Perhaps this advice was less sinister than it sounded, intended to keep wild animals away from the house or protect against burglars but the threats that the Perone family would face were much less ordinary than that. Over the next nine years, Roger, Carolyn, and their daughters Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April would see, hear, and experience things beyond the realm of anything they could have ever imagined. Only the Perone family can truly know what happened to them in that house, but whether you believe it or not, this is their story. The girls loved the farm, finding it heaven on earth for a group of active kids who wanted nothing more than to clamber over the stone walls around the property and climb every tree in sight. There were plenty to choose from. Moving into a house that would later become so infamous, well, one would expect the family to feel a sense of dread. Instead, they were excited. Carolyn and Roger were ready to leave the suburb life behind for something more peaceful, and the girls were ready to live on the biggest playground they had ever known. On move-in day, as they were all carrying boxes inside, the girls saw a man they did not recognize. Another family had been helping them move in, so they brushed it off, assuming he had just gone previously unnoticed. But as members of the other family left and the day wore on, they realized that he was still there. He was not threatening to them or creepy in any way. There were no clanking chains or hollow eyes or blood-stained clothes. He was just an ordinary man, and they likely would have forgotten about him entirely if it hadn't been for what Nancy saw. 
While she was alone, away from her sisters, Nancy looked up to see the man vanish into thin air. He just vaporized, and then he was gone. This was the first clue, innocent though it was, that they were carrying their belongings into a haunted house. As soon as they all settled in and the boxes were unpacked, every last dish put into the cabinets, and the toys in each child's room, spirits began to make themselves known. It didn't start as something scary. In fact, the hauntings began with a series of petty annoyances. Cindy went downstairs for a little while, and, upon returning to her bedroom, found that her beloved Little People toy set had been moved from where she left it. Instead of spread out for her to play with, all of the pieces had been shoved underneath her bed. Naturally, she suspected her sisters, and approached each one to ask them why they had moved her toy set. Each one insisted that she had not done anything to the playset. But that was impossible. There was no one else in the house who could have done it. So one of Cindy's sisters had to be lying to her. As the other girls had toys go missing too, the finger pointing started. The five sisters had always been a tight-knit group, but now their relationship was tinged with suspicion. Why would they do such a thing and then lie about it? Toys continued to go missing from their bedrooms, appearing outside, in other rooms, or out in the barn. Finally, unable to take it anymore, Carolyn sat all of the girls down and told them to stop fighting with each other. Your father and I moved mountains to buy this property so that you could have a wonderful place to live, she said. You've got more than most children on this planet. This stops now. This lecture snapped them out of it and they realized that there was another possibility. There was someone, or something, in the house that was moving their things around. It was then that they realized they were sharing their house with ghosts. The first spirits to make themselves known to the Perone sisters were not malicious or even frightening. In fact, they were kind. The ghost of a woman would come tuck the girls in at night and give them a kiss on the forehead. For a time, Cindy thought it was her mother, but she noticed that this woman had a different smell. Their mother smelled of ivory soap, and this woman smelled like flowers and fruit. Though it was never confirmed, they believed this to be the spirit of Mrs. Arnold, who had once lived in the house. There were the spirits of children, too, filling an already packed house with even more playful, youthful energy. One was a boy named Manny, who made the girls feel comfortable and safe, watching them as they played outside. He wasn't unsettling or frightening at all, but a kind, friendly presence. April had a friend of her own, a little boy called Oliver, who would appear to play with her toys. Cindy saw another child, a little girl. Sometimes there were disputes with the ghostly children, but they were more like the stuff of playground drama rather than the contents of a horror movie. Another kid breaking your toy record player is upsetting, of course, but it's something you cry to your mother about after school, not something that inspires nightmares. There was even a ghost that helped them out with the household chores. Sometimes, in the distance, a member of the family would hear the sound of a broom sweeping the floor. When they entered the room, no one was there. There was just a broom leaned up against a wall, with a pile of dirt swept up next to it. The family referred to it as the sweeping ghost, and was grateful for its help. However, the spiritual activity did not remain quite so mundane. Unfortunately for Roger, Carolyn, and their gaggle of girls, things were about to get dark. After about six months of moving into the house, the girls were playing a game of hide-and-seek. Everything was going well. The girls were giggling and running all through the house in search of the perfect hiding place. Each one looking for somewhere her sisters would never find her. Cindy ran into the woodshed and had a brilliant idea. 
She could hide in the wood box. They would never think to look there. She was so excited about her hiding place that she didn't even notice the box had no latch on it. But that shouldn't have been a problem. The lid was light enough for her to lift and climb in. It should have been easy for her to push her way out. It should have been. Cindy hid inside of the wood box and waited. After enough time had passed, she realized that her sisters really had no idea where she was. It seemed like she had won the game, or at least like the others had gotten tired of looking for her and had decided to take a break. It was hot in the woodshed, and the air was getting stuffy inside the box, so she pushed on the lid. It didn't budge. She pushed harder still. Still, the lid didn't move an inch. Cindy began to get desperate, struggling to breathe. She kicked and screamed, pummeling the lid of the box with her fists and feet, but nothing gave way. It was as if something heavy had been placed on top, or someone was holding the box closed on purpose. After 20 minutes of desperate struggling, Cindy gave up, convinced she was going to suffocate in there. Finally, her sister Nancy wandered into the woodshed and heard crying coming from the box. She lifted the lid without any trouble at all and pulled a trembling, sweat-soaked Cindy out. The lid had not been stuck, and nothing had fallen on top of it. Something had trapped Cindy in there, seemingly on purpose. Whether it was one of the benign spirits playing a joke, or one of the malevolent spirits making its first appearance, this was more threatening than any of the activity in the house had been so far. It didn't stop with that almost fatal game of hide-and-seek, either. Cindy began hearing voices at night, keeping her awake with whispers of death and loss. She would climb into Andrea's bed, desperate for company and comfort in the frightening world of the dark. She told her sister, Annie, I keep hearing these voices. It's a lot of voices, but they're all saying the same things at once. Andrea asked her what the voices were saying, and she responded, There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Soon, the entire family was suffering from the influence of the malevolent spirits in the house. Early in the mornings, around 5.15 a.m., each member of the family would wake up one by one to the putrid smell of rotting flesh. No matter how hard they looked, searching for a dead animal under a floorboard or trapped in the ceiling, they could not find the source of the smell. Invisible forces would pull the girl's hair and yank on their arms and legs while they tried to sleep. Doors banged and screams would echo through the halls in the middle of the night. No one was getting a good night's sleep in that house. While her daughters dealt with their nightly torments, Carolyn Perone received a ghastly bedside visitor of her own. A tall, gaunt woman in a gray dress, her neck bent as if broken, appeared next to her bed. The apparition moaned through yellow teeth in a voice crackling with age and decay. Get out. Get out. I'll drive you out with death and gloom. Whoever the spirit was, she had set her sights on Carolyn and seemed to want to take over her position as the lady of the house. The spirit would flirt with Roger, touching him gently and almost flirtatiously, while Carolyn would wake up with bruises all over her body, aches and pains, and a constant feeling of exhaustion. It was not just the fitful sleep and the stress of living in a haunted house, it was as if something was deliberately draining her energy and feeding off of it. As the situation worsened, the Perone family became increasingly desperate for some kind of relief. They were about to find it, or at least the promise of it, in the form of husband and wife ghost hunting pair Ed and Lorraine Warren.
Next, we learn more about the malevolent presence that targeted the Perone family and how Ed and Lorraine Warren got involved. But first, a quick ad break. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. Ed and Lorraine Warren were a husband and wife investigative team, focusing on paranormal occurrences. Ed was a self-proclaimed demonologist, while Lorraine claimed to be clairvoyant and capable of detecting spiritual activity invisible to the naked eye. They founded the New England Society for Psychic Research and were one of the first investigators into the infamous Amityville haunting. With such a notable reputation for investigating the ghostly and unexplained, they were an appealing solution to the problems at the old Arnold estate. While the Perones were still suffering at the invisible hands of the malevolent entity they were forced to share their home with, Ed and Lorraine Warren were given a talk in Putnam, Connecticut. Barbara, a friend of the family, had heard about their extensive history with the paranormal and went to see their talk. Moved by Ed and Lorraine's presentation, Barbara approached them and told them what her friends were going through, the nightmare that seemed unending and had turned their home into a den of horrors. She told them about how frightened the Perones were, and about the feeling that Carolyn was being possessed by a dark spirit. It was clear from Barbara's account that something was deeply wrong at that house, and the Warrens and the Perones got in touch. As soon as she walked through the door, Lorraine was adamant that there was something dark within the walls of the house. She spoke with Carolyn, who was incredibly relieved to have someone listen to her and believe her harrowing story. Lorraine noticed a small incision on the back of Carolyn's leg, a wound she had not noticed before. This, Lorraine insisted, was the handiwork of the dark spirit that had attached itself to Carolyn. Lorraine and Ed set to work looking into the possible origins of the various spirits in the house, particularly the spirit that had been tormenting Carolyn. She settled on one specific culprit, a woman who had died many years before, named Bathsheba Sherman. According to Mrs. Warren, Bathsheba Sherman once lived on the Sherman farm, an estate located about a mile from the Perrone's home. She was accused of witchcraft following the death of her son, which was assumed to be a satanic sacrifice. She had supposedly driven a needle into the baby's skull, leaving a wound that matched the appearance of the one on Carolyn's leg. Lorraine was convinced that Bathsheba's vengeful spirit had latched onto Carolyn as a demonic presence and was attempting to possess her. The only way to move forward and to cast the presence out of Carolyn was to conduct a seance. The entire family was thrilled that the Warrens were willing to listen to their stories and provide assistance, except for Roger. He remained suspicious of the hauntings as well as the Warrens themselves, but when the possibility of a seance was brought up, he reluctantly agreed. He just wanted the chaos to stop, for his wife and children to sleep soundly again, and for all this talk of ghosts to finally be over. So the Warrens reached out to a priest, and they prepared to commune with Bathsheba and drive her out of Carolyn and out of the home once and for all. On the night of the seance, Carolyn sat in a chair in the dining room, the priest positioned himself in the corner, and Lorraine sat at the table to conduct the proceedings. Ed stood by to supervise as well. The children and Roger held their breath, standing by. All they could do was wait and hope that their mother would be alright at the end of the night. Lorraine began to reach out to the dark spirit who she believed to be Bathsheba. The room was filling with anticipation. 
Lorraine and her team preparing for the very worst while Carolyn and her family hoped for the best. Carolyn began to scream, writhing in pain as the spirit took hold of her, crying out in a foreign language no one had ever heard her speak before. Suddenly, Carolyn's chair lifted into the air, levitated by an invisible influence. The chair jerked violently, throwing her from the dining room into the parlor. She collapsed onto the floor, her head hitting the ground with a sickening crack and knocking her unconscious. The sound of her head colliding with the hard floor reverberated through the house, and the girl screamed. The priest went pale, his hands shaking as he fumbled through the pages of his Bible. Lorraine collapsed at the table, her head down, completely unresponsive. Whatever had happened, it had taken a great deal out of her. Carolyn lay limply on the floor, body curled into a ball, and for a moment, the children were convinced she had died. Roger was furious. He threw the Warrens out of the house and told them to not come back again. The family rushed to Carolyn's side, checking her to make sure she was all right. When she woke up, she had no memory of the seance, though she remembered the events leading up to it. She was shaken up, bruised, and utterly drained, but she was alive, and that was enough for her terrified family. The Warrens came back sometime later to check on Carolyn and see if she was all right, but both she and Roger refused to let them in. They did not want the paranormal investigators in their house ever again. And so, Ed and Lorraine Warren left, hoping that the ghostly activity at the Perone home had stopped once and for all. It hadn't. After the disastrous seance, the haunting continued. In fact, it got worse. In the six years between Ed and Lorraine Warren's final visit and the Perone family's last day in the house... They saw a great deal more activity from around nine different ghosts. The sounds in the dead of night continued, the moving of objects in the dead of night, and the various torments of the dark spirit with a vendetta against Carolyn. When watching a horror movie about a haunted house, people tend to have one question in mind. Why didn't they just move out? How many sleepless nights have to go by before you start packing a bag? Well, it's not always that simple. The Perone family wanted to leave, and desperately so, but they had no money to relocate. None of their friends had room for such a large family, and the property value of the farm was going down every single day. So they had to carry on. Some of the girls trickled out as the years went by, leaving to go to college or move to a new place of their own, but those that stayed behind continued to be haunted. After Andrea left for college, Cindy moved into her old room. Her first night in the new room, the bed began to shake, moving slightly beneath her. At first, she wasn't sure that she was really feeling anything and forced herself to go back to sleep. But soon, it reached a level she could no longer ignore. One night, as she struggled to settle in and get some rest, the bed began to move around the room, careening violently across the floor as she screamed and held on for dear life. It rocked and thrashed, nearly throwing her off of it before it finally came to rest. The next morning, Cindy confronted her mother, furious that she had not intervened. "'You didn't hear me screaming?' she demanded. "'You didn't hear my bed moving all over the room?' Carolyn insisted that she had not heard a thing. The house had a way of muffling their screams, and they had all started to get used to it. Finally, in 1980, after nine years in the cursed farmhouse, they made that long-awaited sale 
As soon as the ink was dry on the paperwork, the family packed up their things and headed straight for Georgia. The girls wondered if the ghosts might follow them to a new house, but they didn't. Cindy told the others, they're trapped there. If they could have gone with us when we left, they would have, because they loved us. For some of the girls, it was a sad affair to leave the home they had grown so attached to and the kindly spirits that had been their constant companions for so long. But for others, and especially for Carolyn, it was a relief to finally be in a home where there was no invisible presence attacking them, nothing waiting at the foot of their beds with portents of doom. After nearly a decade of living, playing, and trying to sleep in that hell on earth, they were finally free. So, what happened to the house? What became of the infamous Arnold estate? Paranormal investigators Corey and Jennifer Heinzen purchased the property in 2019 and moved in with their daughter Madison. Though they haven't felt threatened by anything in the house, it hasn't been exactly quiet either. There have been doors opening on their own, knocks on the wall, and phantom footsteps. While eating dinner alone in the kitchen, Madison saw something move out of the left corner of her eye. All she could see was the flutter of a veil and a long skirt, and when she turned to look at it more closely, it disappeared. Others have tried their hand at staying in the famous haunted house. This year, people's Julia Jordan and some of her friends stayed the night in the Arnold estate to see what the fuss was about for themselves. They set up motion detectors and turned out the lights and waited. The motion detectors were triggered multiple times throughout the night, along with loud creaking sounds with no apparent cause a mysterious ball of light, and several objects appearing to move on their own. A table shifted into someone's leg, and a book fell off of a shelf with no apparent cause. Though their experience was not nearly as dramatic as the Perone families, the group of women were happy to leave the house in the morning. In the years since their haunting, the Perone family did their best to move on. Andrea Perone has written books about the experience as well as participating in a documentary about the haunting entitled Bathsheba, Search for Evil. It is important to Andrea that people know that the dark entity in the house was almost certainly not Bathsheba Sherman. Though Sherman was a real woman who indeed lived and died in the area, there is no evidence she was ever a practitioner of any satanic rituals, nor was she ever even accused of witchcraft during her life. However, even if it wasn't Sherman, Andrea Perone and the rest of her family still insist that something dark targeted Carolyn while they lived in that house. As for that dark spirit... It may still be circling the family all these years later. One day, during the filming of The Conjuring, the Perone family, with the exception of Carolyn, who was too nervous to go, accepted an invitation to visit the set. The visit went well, and everyone was kind and gracious with the family. The crew asked if the Perones would give an interview, and they agreed. After the equipment was set up and they were preparing to begin the interview, a strange gust of strong wind knocked on the cameras, lights, and equipment all around the family. Andrea Perone described it saying, The cameras went flying, the screens went flying, the microphones went flying, the booms went flying, our hair went flying, everything. They were grabbing their cameras, grabbing their equipment. It was like a 70-mile-an-hour wind. And I looked around and none of the trees were moving. Nothing. There was nothing going on on that set. Anywhere else on that set. Meanwhile, across the country, at the same exact time, Carolyn Fallon broke her hip. The rest of the family rushed to the hospital to see her and from her hospital bed, Carolyn insisted that the accidents had been caused by that same dark spirit from decades before. Why? As Carolyn put it that day, she does not want to be exposed. 
In spite of the skepticism around the haunting, doubts about the Warrens, and the debate around the Arnold estate's sordid history, one thing is for certain. Something happened in that house, and it changed the lives of the Perone family forever. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our editor and musician is the incredible Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit insidious.show.